Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Loyston, and no matter where you are in the world, it's awesome to have you listening to the show. It's always cool to hear from listeners just like you, so why not drop me an email at daniel at sponsor.net or find us on Twitter at Sponserve. There's been a few listeners lately who have gotten in touch and made some intros to some upcoming guests that we've got planned or they've suggested an idea for a topic for a podcast. So firstly, thanks to all those people. It is much appreciated. For everyone else, if there is anything you'd love to hear about, whether it's a topic or you've got a question, you just want to learn about a certain area of sponsorship, then just let me know. Someone you definitely want to stay tuned in for is Stephen Power, Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer at Houston Dynamo. He's my guest on the show this episode, and it's a very interesting and insightful chat. This episode is a little different because in our regular chat with Mark Thompson, I decided to grab the camera and broadcast the recording of our chat live on Facebook. So if you've always wanted to know how one of the slickest productions in the world is put together, then head to our Facebook page and see the magic. And can I just point out that no makeup was needed in that live broadcast, despite the fact that we both have perfect heads for radio. Simply amazing. So our chat focuses on a question that Mark was recently asked, and the question was, government departments are not your standard corporate. How do I position my sponsorship opportunity when dealing with government to have the best shot at success? And Mark was asked that question sort of over the Christmas, New Year period as uh, somebody in our network was trying to land a major government sponsor. And we just heard yesterday that they'd been successful in securing that sponsorship, which looks like a, a four-year deal. Uh, so that is a fantastic outcome. So firstly, I've trained Mark well enough now so that his first thought when he's asked a question like that is, there's a blog post in that. And so while he obviously helped the person in our network with some, some great advice, he also put his thoughts down in a blog. So I caught up with him to discuss it. Here's Mark. Our first chat for 2017, because the, the the chat we did last week, yeah. or two, uh, the last episode, actually recorded it before I went overseas. Well, I don't know, it was done early December or something like that. How was your Christmas? It was good, mate. Yes. And, uh, and then we've both done UK trips yes. since we last spoke. Best present you got at Christmas? Um, a guitar. <laughs> can you play the guitar? I can play a little bit. I played when I was younger, and I, I've not played for a if you were, if you had to play one song right now, what would it be? Eagle Rock. Oh yeah, yeah. Sea Eagles. Sea Eagles. Right. And and you're off to the UK again when? Uh, you do tell me, but I don't really. No, pay you, attention. you're going before me. Am I? Yeah. Oh, okay, so I'm going in April sometime. Yeah. I'll be there for a couple of weeks. So listeners, if you want to catch up for uh, coffee, beer, uh, a nice uh, English curry, yep. I'm up for that. And then when do you go? Uh, uh, May. So I normally would go every odd month. Yep. Um, just. For your own knowledge, uh, however, I might write that down. <laughs> yeah, but my uh, wife and I are expecting a new bub in uh, in March, so I'm taking uh, this sort of travel cycle off. So I won't be doing much more travel from mid February through to the end of April. Very good. Is the house ready for the baby? Yep, it's good. Christmas. He said that with pretty. real confidence. Yeah, productive. <laughs> Let me ask it differently. How much have you helped prepare the house? A lot. Really? I spent my whole Christmas break gifts, building furniture and. Moving my wife's office outside, building a new office outside to prepare the baby's room. Very good. All right. So you got posed 
a question recently, which was what? How to position sponsorship to the government. Right. Okay. And as opposed to, I don't know, a, a public brand like Coke or yeah. Apple or somebody like that, yeah. are there any similarities though? Or are they just the same? Or It's still a sponsorship proposition at the end of the day, right? I... I I haven't really come across too many. I've seen it a few times, but too many government departments that actually just give free handouts of cash. They've always got to be acquitted. Um, they've always got to be, you know, aligned with certain government objectives or program objectives that they're looking to achieve. So, therefore, um, the process that you need to go through to identify how to position your proposal to access that money isn't too different from a standard sponsorship proposal. It's then just your positioning of it that changes. So what are the similarities that we should keep in mind before we even go and explore what are the differences? Well, I mean, the, the similarities are that there's still um, objectives that, that are tied to the money. Um, they want to achieve something by spending the money, yeah? Correct. There's still benefits that you can offer that align to those objectives. And then... Um, you still need to acquit and report on that on that benefit. So, to ensure your proposal's on the right track, there's three key things that you know I would suggest you some steps you look at. Yeah, three yep. steps. So, the first one is research, and research is just as important here as anywhere. So, you need to identify the outcomes that the the government department are trying to achieve, and find out where the money is already being spent, so that. Um, you know, there's a different market market and different audience being offered up. Remembering that government departments are all about um, providing um, impact and outcomes for the community. So if they're providing the same outcomes to, to the same people or similar outcomes to the same people, it's not going to be impactful spending for them and it's going to be short term. So research, that's a first step? Yeah, research. Alignment. So um, just like with any corporate, there needs to be an alignment with what you can offer um, as a rights holder and what they're looking to achieve. So, you know, if they're looking to achieve something in the rural areas and you've got a rural reach through your either programs or audience membership. or membership yep. or whatever, that's the sort of stuff you should be looking at. And then your benefits should then help the government department with their internal acquittal. Is that the third step? No, the, well, the third step's kind of that. It's reporting. Right, so okay. reporting's super important with government. They, they have to report internally on how they've spent their money. They've got KPIs internally for all the programs that they run, um, and it is public money, so it's very tight reporting. So you should be able to demonstrate and effectively report to those people and be expected to and prepared to report differently to how you would with anyone else. So what I mean by that is, you know, in a different format, something that helps them internally just pass that on rather than you give them information then they've got to do a bunch of work. Yeah, make it easy for make them. Make it easy for them, yeah. Very good. So there's some similarities. There's still some key steps that we go through with research, alignment and reporting. And those similarities are that the government department's looking to achieve an outcome and they yep. want to spend money to achieve yep. that outcome. Yeah. How do they differ to what we would probably call a public-facing brand, a corporate? Yeah. So, I mean, we talk about this a lot, but benefits are tied to objectives in, in all uh, government sort of funding arrangements, especially within sport. So it's vital for a government partnership to be able to tie 
um, specific things they're receiving to specific things they're trying to achieve. So once you identify what the objectives of a department are, and they'll be clearly spelt out through their KPIs or, um, you know, marketing program or whatever these is. Comms plans, they quite often have comms plans. Yeah, depending on what the program is that they're looking for. So, you know, we see a lot in safe driving camp campaigns and stuff in within sport using the athletes to promote a, a positive message. So you should directly align the objectives to the benefits you've identified will help achieve them. And I mean, like, literally align them. So this benefit helps you achieve this objective. That's how the proposal should look. Right. So it can just be a linear type thing. It's just Wouldn't that be good to do for every sponsor? It's good to do it's good to do sort of holistically, I think, on a on a corporate sponsorship proposal. But the, the corporates um, tend to also have a little bit of non-tangible stuff as well yeah. around, you know, because there's a, a lot, lot of look and feel and brand alignment and stuff as well. So, And as you were saying with the reporting, yeah. six, nine, 12 months down the track with this uh, sponsorship that you hopefully have in place with the government department, just like they're reporting, giving it to them in an easy format, you probably want to arm them before the sponsorship so that if people come and ask questions about, well, why do we have a sign there or why do we get tickets to that or why do we get – you say, this is definitely what it's aligned to helping us achieve. Exactly right. And, and, and that probably – sorry to interrupt, but that probably helps then with the reporting. You just put the reporting along each of those elements. Yeah, exactly right. And, and um, it also helps with the probity stuff within government and things like that as well because you can it's, – it's aligned to the objectives of the program. It's not aligned to people benefiting from it individually. Yep. Um, funding – should then also be tied to that. So by that, I mean the release of funding to you, it really helps them if they can go, okay, you've achieved these outcomes and you've done these things, so here's some money. So because that that internally makes their life a lot easier in terms of the release of cash, but also on following budget cycles, they can actually say, we did this with the money, tick, 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 tick. When they reapply for the following funding through the following budget cycle, then you know, it's it's much easier for sort of they've used it wisely, they've used it responsibly in the community's eyes and things like that. So, um, you know, an example I would say there is that, you know, a community engagement might be, especially for something like safe driving, community engagement might be a, a an objective that they have under that program. They want to use the rights holders brand and image and, and and assets to engage with the community in a positive light and get this positive driving message and safe driving message out there so to do that there's there's elements that that, that rights holder has and let's go down the sporting path right an afl club for example has access to an audience that is highly engaged that potentially the, the government department can't reach otherwise they've got a they've got social media assets and they've got players, right? And and the, and the fans, like you said, they're highly engaged. They love those players. They listen to them. Yeah, so then if you run an EDM campaign, some Facebook stuff, and you generate some content maybe with some video and stuff with a player driving safely or talking about driving safely, and then you share that out. And then you link that to, okay, we've, we've actually ticked off these benefits. We've delivered these to you. And you've broken down the funding maybe, let's just, for ease of numbers, $750,000, over three lots of 250,000, um, you know, we've done these objectives, now you can pay us 250,000. We've done these objectives, 250, and line that out in a schedule in your proposal so yeah. that they can take it and go, not only do we know this is going to align to our objectives, this is going to help our program be promoted, this is how we're going to spend the money, this is how we can account for it, and this is how we can acquit it. 
Yeah. Yep. Very and, good. And then obviously then that feeds really naturally into reporting. So yeah, reporting is done on a time-based manner, execution-based manner, not necessarily on an outcomes-based manner. The, the government departments themselves around economic impacts and stuff will have their own formulas that they'll ask you to fill in and stuff. But um, it's more around, you know, the advocacy and the, 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 the reach that you're, you're getting out to that you should report on rather than, you know, actual action outcomes. Yeah, very good. Anything else that we need to keep in mind when we're positioning a... Sponsorship to a government department? Well, I, I just can't stress enough um, that, that it is public money, so it has to be used responsibly. So your reporting, your alignment to benefits and your acquittal of it has to really line up as as people would want to see that can be accountable. But also that government departments are funded by other government departments. So, you know, the Department of Finance or whoever ultimately hands out the money. So they've got to apply for that internally. So you've got to help them by being a, in a supportive measure for your contact within the program you're getting money from. And, and actually, maybe you'll have to change your process and provide them reports in a different manner to do to everyone else to help them because that will actually help you get the money again. Very good. And if you want to read all those thoughts, approaches, hints and tips, just head along to sponsor.net, head to the blog section, and what do you know? There it is. Our guest for this week is Stephen Powell, Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer at Houston Dynamo. Stephen has 23 plus years experience as a sales and marketing professional with an extensive background in the creation and management of successful sales and marketing strategies and tactics. In that time, uh, it's included vast experience in football in the US as well as in the UK. As a commercial professional in a sport, that doesn't quite have the history that others do in the US, but which has definitely grown significantly and now attracts world-class players and investment. This chat with Stephen is one that I'm sure you will find very educational. Here's Stephen. Stephen Powell, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here, Daniel. We always kick off with a few, well, hopefully easy icebreaker questions just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. And the first one is, if your house was burning down and you could only take one item with you, what would it be? Well, I'm glad you're asking, you're asking me that question and not the missus, because <laughs> it'd be a big truck out in the front of the driveway. Um, uh, you know, apart from the, 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 the wife and the kids and the dog, I've got a, um, a large photograph of my granddad um, framed by my front door. He was a member of the Coldstream Guards in uniform that uh, I cherish and my kids cherish. I would grab the external hard drive. We've got all our family photographs and as many football programs as I could grab from my collection. (laughs) So you could tell that's something that's actually crossed my mind over the years, what I would grab myself personally. Yeah, they they say that that question um, tells... Uh, a lot about a person and it would appear that that is something you've thought about and I, you, we won't make you answer but maybe even have a little bit of an action plan written down in case of a fire. There so, we go, exactly. Stephen, the second question is, what was your first ever job? Um, I, the first job I probably did was something I think a lot of, a lot of boys and girls did, um, you know, decades ago. It was a newspaper out. I did that when... Um, I did a bit in England and did a little newspaper out when I was in New Zealand. Um, And then I did some dog walking, but it was primarily the paper out. My dad was an electrician when I got a bit older, when I I actually could hand in the right screwdriver. 
I used to help him out a little bit too on some projects and jobs. Very good. And no doubt being a Dynamo fan comes with the role, but having grown up or, or originated in the UK, who was your team when you were growing up and how long did it take for you to adjust calling it soccer? <laughs> so uh, my team in England, I'm, I'm so ashamed to say this today based on the horrible result we had today as Arsenal, um, that we are going to be perennial Champions League participants, although we won't win bugger all, it appears. Um, so it's always been Arsenal. My, my dad was an Arsenal supporter, and my uncles are. Um, fortunately, Daniel, because of, because of the environment I work in, I can get away with calling it footy or football quite a bit around the people I'm at. I sometimes have to adjust that when I'm in different mixed settings. Americans that really aren't fans of the game, and I'll, I'll say football, and they'll start talking about the NFL. I go, no, 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 I'm not that football. Um, but it, I, I just have to be conscious of it and adjust it accordingly, whoever I'm with. Well, my heart bleeds for you as an Arsenal fan who get to play in the Premier League pretty much every single year. As a Leeds fan, my heart bleeds for Oof. you, Steve. Um, so yeah. what has been your pathway up to your current role? And I'm particularly interested in how you jumped from the radio industry into sports sponsorship. It was, um, you know, I'll say this. I do feel very, very blessed and very, very lucky. We all have good days and bad days where I sometimes feel sorry for myself. But <laughs> I, I, my, my goals when I was a boy were two things I wanted to be. Professional footballer, play for Arsenal. And I wanted to be a commentator. Um, John Motson, who continues to do an incredible job for BBC, was my hero. And I always went, oof, I've got to be John Motson. That's what I want to be. So um, I, I, I focused a lot on football, probably too much, frankly, uh, at various ages. I had a trial with Arsenal when I was 16. Um, they told me, you're good, but by the way, son, you're nowhere near good enough to play for us. Um, they recommended me to, this is a funny story, recommended me to Millwall, who I think were probably second, third division then. The manager of Millwall then was a man who I would later work for 20 years ago called Gordon Jago, um, that was manager at QPR. So that was, I always had a passion for the game. Um, so even when I got into radio, it was, I'm getting into radio because I want to be a sports commentator. Um, so I started on air started um, running radio stations and then felt like this isn't taking me to the path I wanted to. So I took a job um, working for the Wichita Wings as basically what you consider a commercial manager. I did some radio, did some some commentary of those games, but primarily my sole role was, was doing that. So it was a fairly easy segue in terms of going from on-air talent to the commercial side from radio into uh, into the football business. In 2012, you were awarded the Corporate Partnerships Executive of the Year. Now, that sounds really important and prestigious. What were some of the things that you achieved that year in, in, that led to that award? Well, it was, uh, it was, I know people always say this, but it genuinely was a, a team and an organization effort that, that kind of that resulted in that. Um, I work very, very closely with the president of the club. I mean, it's, it's funny when you talk about presidents of clubs, probably same down under it is in England. It's kind of an honorary role. Here, the president is the chief exec. Um, so myself and the chief exec work very closely with the architects, the project managers, the, the general contractor on the building. 
And a big part of that was working on the design of the stadium and um, being very specific about where we could monetize that, whether it be ticketing, premium seat inventory, or what we could kind of build sponsorship naming rights around. So it was a lot of that. We grew a sponsorship income 70% in one year. We more than doubled what we were able to accomplish from a ticketing standpoint. And it just was a an incredible relevance lift in terms of what it did for the business. But, um, you know, we, we as an organization had won the Commercial Team of the Year Award, I think about two or three years earlier, as we were tracking. You know, it was just the evolution of our business from, from moving from another city to becoming relevant, to being successful, to moving into, into a new stadium. So it was a huge honor. And, and, you know, frankly, anybody who works in this industry, if they ever have the opportunity to be involved in a new build, new design, they should jump at it because it's challenging, but it's the rewards are just incredible. And currently you're the executive vice president and chief commercial officer at the Houston Dynamo. So that I imagine covers pretty much all of the commercial activities of the club. How how big is the team that you have in place, and how, how is it structured? Including, you know, do you work much with external suppliers to support that team and achieve your objectives? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we do. We work with some, in terms of external suppliers. We'll work with some um, some marketing agencies from time to time. We work with some research firms to provide data that we need, obviously, on a regular basis. Um, my role in the last probably six months has changed. Um, previously, the, the, the way the org chart um, sat, we had a director of ticket sales that reported to me in addition to a, uh, a director of sponsorship, a director of partnership marketing, and then dotted line um, with all of those, all of that stuff. That was basically 40 people, um, which was pretty time consuming in terms of uh, the effort you know, that had to be put in terms of managing people. We've since hired a vice president of ticketing who's, who's now managing that space on a day-to-day basis. Uh, he reports up to myself, our COO, and our chief exec. And now I have a director of sponsorship, a director of partnership marketing, which is the service of that. Um, they report into me, and then their, their team's dotted line report into me. And I am very much one of those in-the-trenches commercial people. If I literally had to sit behind a desk, Daniel, and just, you know, bugger around reports all day and, and, and just be kind of penciling out budget adjustments, I would go absolutely insane. The part I love about the job is being in the trenches, prospecting, talking to clients, understanding objectives, and helping my team build these partnerships. So it's given me a, a kind of a different opportunity and a, and a different uh, different ability to, to have probably even more impact on how we can drive the revenue in the new kind of role. You've spoken already in the first couple of minutes of, of the team and how important it is and particularly made mention of how important that, that team effort was in winning an award and, and the team won an award a couple of years earlier. When you're recruiting for a team, what are some of the, the most important attributes you're looking to add or that people need to have? Yeah, that's it's a good question. I mean, we've, you know, it's interesting. There's a, there was a time when uh, Major League Soccer used to talk about hiring people that were soccer-centric, creating a lovely word there, <laughs> football-centric, right? The mindset being that if the person didn't have a passion for the game and an understanding of the game, they couldn't effectively kind of build partnerships and communicate it and be enthusiastic enough. 
I think it helps to have a passion for the game. Um, I don't think it's 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 has to be has to be in 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 in, in effect. Um, on my sponsorship team, the, on the business development team of the five, uh, only one of them really has got any background in the sport. The rest of them are sports junkies. Um, they're you know commercial people. So I think it's for us because we are the call it the number five league in the country, um, really closing down on the other ones, I, I genuinely believe, but um, four to five in, mo in most markets. You have to have thick skin. You've got to be very, very competitive. I think you have to have great communication skills um, and, and, you know, good people skills. It, it, it's interesting that with the, the millennial generation, there's a lot, there's lots and lots of positives that come from this generation, but the ability to look eye to eye at somebody um, and not be sitting in a laptop or buried into an, an iPad is something that's a bit more challenging. So I'm looking for people that I know can sit down, look at me in the eye when I ask a question and return that, that vision, right? And, and, and share with me what they enjoy, what their passions are, what they, you know, how they deal with challenges in their current job, how they would deal with challenges in this job. So, I mean, we, we, have, we are very, very blessed with the team we have. We've also been able to retain this team for the last probably two or three years. We haven't always been able to do that. And that is the other part when it's important with commercially growing the business is relationships. And if you have to keep, you know, rehiring people, Daniel, and, the, and you've got a big partner that's used to dealing with Daniel Oyston and joins your company, trust you, and then suddenly I've got to call the client and say, Daniel's left us to join Team XYZ, and I'm putting somebody else in. They're like, oh. We just got used to trusting this guy and like and working with this guy. You know what I mean? So it's we we do a I think a, a very strong job in retaining them, but we probably can do a better job. Yeah, it, I think that comment around that the the soccer or football centric and the the focus on the passion for the game. I've had a couple of encounters over the last or oh, maybe three or four months where people who you would expect to be really passionate about the game are the complete opposite. And I won't give any identities away, but right. I had one uh, commercial manager of an entire competition say to me, oh, don't talk to me about that export. I don't even like it. Yet he's yeah. heading up the, the commercial program. But is one of the most impressive commercial managers I've run into in, in my time. So I don't think yeah. sometimes just you know being passionate about the sport can only get you so far. Yeah, I think it's 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 – it's. I, I tell you what. I hope the industry doesn't go this length, but you're starting to see. I'm not being critical of, of this industry, but you're starting to see more and more smart solicitors coming into the space. And I think it's probably even more important. You've got a real strong legal background if you're working for Premier League clubs, because frankly, some Premier League clubs, Daniel, are, are literally just. They're not proactively having to go out and get business. They're, they're fielding inquiries, right, in terms of what the opportunities look like. So they have to be able to clearly understand and define what the, what the partner's objectives are. But it's peeling through contracts that are 300 pages long. Mm. Um, plus about they don't have to worry about picking phones up and doing that research and identifying who's the right telecom brand in this particular part of the world because those those companies are coming to them so it's a different kind of role you know what i mean outside of that that you know um that group of super clubs 
I think there's an awful lot of hard grafting that's going on below that that watermark, you know? I'd agree 100%. Speaking about that hard graft, and you spoke about relationships with sponsors and things like that, looking at the club's commercial program more broadly, can you just give the listeners a bit of a, a rundown of who some of your key partners and, and are and maybe how long they've been with the club? Yeah, we've got, well, interestingly enough, our shirt sponsor is BHB Billiton, uh, um, obviously from Down Under, from Australia. Yeah. Uh, they, they've been our shirt sponsor for the last couple of years. They are absolutely um, first-class organization to work with. Um, they understand exactly what, what their objectives are. They understand that if there's any changes in the market, that they, they have the ability to come to us and make adjustments in that agreement. Um, so we've had a phenomenal relationship with them. They do a lot of things. It's their oil and gas kind of division, Daniel, which obviously is Houston is very important and very competitive. Um, we work with BBVA Compass. BBVA is the, the big Spanish uh, financial concern. Compass was a southern-based, an Alabama-based um, bank they acquired a few years back. They were pretty much an invisible brand. They came into the marketplace became the, the name and rights partner of our stadium. They're also the jersey sponsor of our women's team. Um, all of the research that, we, the, the, that we've shown them, that we've kind of commissioned, has shown the growth that we've been able to offer them in terms of a brand identity has been phenomenal. So we're very, very pleased with that relationship. Um, we work with Audi. Um, we work with Honda. Um, soon to announce a new carbonated soft drink partner. It's one of the big, the big world players. We'll be announcing that next couple of weeks. We work with McDonald's. We work with um, 76 Gasoline. Um, we, we, we have been made, we made a very, very concerted effort probably three or four years ago um, when we got just after we got into the new stadium that two things we didn't want to do. We didn't want to be one of those sports um, um, rights holders that went out and just had 100 partners to meet our kind of our revenue goals um, and that we diluted every relationship we had, Daniel. You know, it was like you walk into the ground and you go, blimey, there's, it's like every single company that's listed has got some signage in this building, you know, which you see that in some buildings. You see that in buildings in, uh, in, in South Texas. We wanted to be in a position where we weren't selling advertising, we were selling partnerships. So that's a very, very important key word that we use when we sit down and talk to people and they're asking us about, you know, what we can do for them. We have to take that step back and say, share with us more about your business. Share with us what your goals and objectives are about what you want to be able to accomplish. And then we have the ability to kind of create those bespoke opportunities. You know, it's that blank piece of paper that we can build out exactly what you're looking for going forward. And so far, it's been it's been hugely successful. It's an outstanding segue to my next question because it is what do you think are the sponsor objectives that the Dynamo are best place to help brands achieve? Is it brand awareness? Is it engaging with the community? What are the objectives that you're best placed to help brands achieve? Uh, we do all of the above. Um, I think it's we're finding. Uh, you know, social digital media is, is obviously a, um, a vehicle that we use it extensively. A lot so more and more brands are starting to understand how to use it more effectively. 
you know, I'm old enough to remember when the web came online and everybody was, you know, all the ad agencies were, we're buying web, we're buying that worldwide internet thing. And they really didn't understand what it was. And I think, I think the, the evolution of social digital media has kind of gone through the same thing. We're, we're getting more and more of these brands are asking smarter and smarter questions about what we can and what we can't offer. We've got a, a incredibly talented kind of in-house agency that can create this content that we can customize this content and integrate branding and messaging into it. So that's an area that we use quite a bit. Grassroots marketing, I think, is another area that sometimes gets overlooked, which I think represents gigantic value because brands are always trying to figure out ways of how do I get the consumer to actually engage with my product, my service, with my brand. We become almost like a Trojan horse, Daniel. You know, we, we, have, we have the players, we have our brand. We can open up the doors for those brands that typically if they're trying to sell insurance or this or that, it's kind of a dry topic. You know, people aren't interested in watching, watching a, a video clip or, or a, a trailer or content just to talk about how they're saving money on their bloody home insurance, <laughs> right? So I think we've got a creative team of people that can sit down and create a kind of creative solutions and content around that that we've been hugely successful in kind of delivering. So in knowing what objectives you're well-placed to help brands achieve, let's say you've identified a, a potential new partner, you're doing some prospecting, and you're trying to secure that first meeting, you're trying to get through that, that sort of that gatekeeper step, what are some of the things that you do? What are the steps or the processes you do or go through to get in front of them? Are there any tips or tricks that you can share with the listeners? We, uh, I talk to my team about this um, literally on a regular basis, and I, this, you know, this has spawned new industries as well, right, in terms of people that can refer and provide you this list and provide you that list. I think a lot of that comes down to effective networking. There was a time I used to hate that word. You know, to me, it meant something else, you know. Um, and now I realize it, it's, it demonstrates trust. It's that word I keep on using, but it's so important that if you can develop real networks of brands and of partners, um, you then have the ability to talk to those current partners and say, listen, I work with you on a, on a telecom basis. We're looking at trying to identify the right device partner. I know you work with, with brands A through J. Um, which of these brands do you think would be the right fit? And, and we, we would be very appreciative if you could provide us those referrals. I, I don't think enough sports um, rights holders do that enough. I think it's... That, I think as long as you're, you've developed the right level of trust with the brands, they're willing to do it. Maybe the sensitivity and the hesitation in doing it is, uh, and, and clubs not doing it, excuse me, is these are the clubs that are selling advertising that really don't have a partnership. It's just transactional, Daniel, you know? It's like, I sold this to Daniel. You're never going to see me again, son, until next year, until it's time <laughs> to renew it again. I dumped you on a service person. And by the way, don't bother calling my number because I'm not returning your call. Yeah, right. So <laughs> you, you know that? Yeah, absolutely. You, you've been in, involved in soccer or football in the US for about 14 years and the Dynamo now for about 10 years. I'm I'm keen to explore how the landscape has changed and how it com- how you think it compares to other markets, the, the football, commercial and sponsorship market in the US. and. And even what types of assets or inventory you spoke about digital before, have you really seen develop or, or just ideas that have come from other markets that you implement? 
Major League Soccer does a very, very good job. In fact, it came back from meetings in Los Angeles in terms of uh, sharing those best practices, sharing some, some different activations that other teams have done so we can all learn. Um, it's such a massive country, much like Australia. It makes it a little bit more challenging to get in front of people. I've got friends that work on the commercial side in England. You, you know, you, you drive an hour and you're six clubs, you know. Here, you, you're driving five hours to get to Dallas. Mm. You know, it's the closest club we have. Or 12 hours to Kansas City. So I think the league does a pretty good job on that. I think a lot of us, my colleagues at other clubs, um, there's only really two markets that they compete with each other. Daniel, New York, um, uh, currently has two teams, one in Jersey, one in New York. Los Angeles will have two. So they kind of compete with each other. So they're a bit more particular about sharing too much information. The rest of us are, are, are keen to share what's working, what isn't working, how do we make those changes on a pretty regular basis, which I think has tended to pay dividends. The, the audience, the sport has changed so dramatically in the U.S. Um, it's, it astounds me. I mean, I first started working in this industry in 1993. It was, you know, USACA mums and dads, you you know, the parents, the kids, that's all we really had. There was a few people that had maybe been exposed to the game when they were based somewhere else, or there was a few certain commit. There wasn't lots of, uh, I'd say, diversity or an international influence in Wichita, believe me. <laughs> um, other markets I lived in more so, like Florida. But now when you look at a city like Houston, where 53% um, of our audience is Hispanic, which pretty much mirrors what this, the community looks like. Um, it's an oil and gas center for the U.S. So there's Scots, there's English, there's Australians, there's Nigerians, there's Norwegians. They all come with the same passion for this game. So it's, a, it's an incredible experience to go to our games and hear all the different accents and, and to spend time talking to different people and find out what brought them here. Not always oil and gas, but sometimes other industries. Um, and building the new stadium also changed as well. You know, we weren't able to go out and and attract as much corporate support when we played in a old American football stadium. It was built in 1932 and literally was crumbling. I mean, literally crumbling. Um, once we built the new the new stadium, you know, we were we were filled in a lot more interest from corporations. So now, you know, I I I, I never have people meet me in our offices because we don't actually office at the stadium. I have them meet at the stadium. I give them a VIP tour. I call it my Disneyland tour. Yep. Uh, so I can kind of share with them, imagine what you know what your brand would look like in this building. Let's talk about how you entertain your clients in here. Um, so it's changed remarkably. It really has. And, and I just think it's, it's only going to get stronger. Um, I think all the other leagues realize that Major League Soccer is, is trending in a very positive place. You know, we're in a market that we've got a Major League Baseball team, um, uh, an NBA team, and an NFL team. So we're in one of those super hyper-competitive marketplaces. Um, it's a big city um, with a lot of economic strength, but the, 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 the bucket is only so big, Daniel, mm. you know, um, for sports marketing. So that's why we just need to be that wee bit more aggressive, um, we bit more creative, maybe offering more of those bespoke opportunities than others to win that business. 
Have you seen the objectives that brands want to achieve? So you've, you've just spoken about how much it's how much it's changed and the the competitive nature, particularly where you are. Have you seen the objectives that brands want to achieve in your market change much in that time? Um, yeah, I think I have. I think it was. I mean, well, take the social media space. You know that there's there's still a lot of value in, in impressions. But they're now looking, the key word that, that mirrors um, grassroots marketing and social media is engagement. I want people engaging with my brand. That, to me, represents value. So, And we know that if we can come up with effective activation, we can come up with incredible content, we can drive impressions, which in turn will drive, you like to think, ultimately, engagement. So that's what I think people are looking for now more. Um you know, uh, there, there is still brand plays in the world, but I, I just think there's less and less of them, you know. Um, some of the challenges that I think we some, sometimes tend to face is uh, on, the, on the sports um, marketing side, um, a, a brand will hire an agency to go out and run the ruler over what is this worth, and the agency will typically be a media agency, and all they know how to do is evaluate radio, television, you know, cost per million. They don't really understand the ex- experiential side. Yeah, there is some firms that do it, but not enough. So I actually think that's going to be a space that you're going to start seeing some some pretty significant growth in the future as well, because brands are spending more and more time um, being able to confirm, ex- you know, exactly what they hope they're going to achieve before they sign that contract. It's getting tougher and tougher to people to say yes. Yeah, of course, and and I think you spoke about you know impressions and then engagement, and that's why I think you know sports sponsorship or any sponsorship uh, is quite attractive for those brands that want engagement, not just necessarily brand awareness or brand positioning, because you're essentially piggybacking off an existing audience who trust the Dynamo, who in some level have ownership of the Dynamo because they're my team, they're our family's team and they've got an affinity with the players and they follow them and the brand can piggyback onto them because like you said before, I don't want to engage with an insurance company that's pretty boring but if you can mix it in and you're generating and tailoring your own content in-house like you were speaking about before, it still seems really, really attractive to me. I totally agree. I mean, we've got research from Nielsen um, and we use in our presentations that talks about that the loyalty to us as a club, and that these are these are Dynamo fans that are saying 88% of them are going to be more likely to use the product services of our sponsors versus another brand because they 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 partner with us. So it is the trust. It's the brand association piece of that that has massive value. I don't think the media, a newspaper, radio station, a television station can say the same thing, Daniel. Mm. You know what I mean? It's 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 a you're, you're throwing advertising content out into that space unless they're able to integrate that message into talent then i think they can pull it off and obviously we try to do that as well when it comes to you're seeing it more and more in the movies right in terms of product placement we try to come up with similar type of things we're working on something right now we're at for audi um that we hope to figure out ways of integrating their their vehicles and their messaging into some of the cool things that we do that's subtle but powerful. Mm, of course, makes complete sense. You spoke about before about how you're not really one that likes to be sitting there adjusting budgets and spreadsheets and things like that. And you, you also just spoke about 
how it be, it's getting harder sometimes to get brands to say yes because it all needs to be much more tighter and planned out and tracked. Have you seen much change in in how you need to, as an organisation, report back to sponsors in helping them justify their investment over the years? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Um, I, I am, frankly, suspicious and nervous if we're ever working with, and it's a rare occasion, frankly, if we're ever working with a brand that at the end of the year doesn't want to sit down with us and go over a recap and understand what we've accomplished, what we haven't accomplished, and talk about the following year. I'm very, very skeptical about that, right? So now, I mean, it's my team put together a um, an incredibly detailed recap deck, Daniel, that's um, just as sophisticated as the initial proposal, a presentation that we actually pitched them, which might have been, you know, a year, two years before that. And it breaks down every piece of the partnership. Uh, it breaks down in terms of, uh, of impressions, of engagement, of, um, you know, ratings information. It talks about um, research that we've actually commissioned in regards to maybe some grassroots events. So, and if we do our job right, we're asking on the front end how they're going to how they're going to evaluate this partnership. That becomes important information that we need to feed into um, how we build out um, um, the valuation over the whole length of the year, and in turn build it into that recap presentation. Makes complete sense. Are there any areas of sponsorship that you think the U.S. market executes really well compared to other markets, or vice versa, things that you know overseas markets do really well, but the U.S. doesn't, or even that those things just don't translate culturally? Is there much of a gap? Um, I th- you know, the U.S. are kings at this. I mean, they absolutely are kings at this. Um, you know, I obviously spend quite a bit of time and know a lot of people in the game in, in England at some high levels who are super, super smart, very, very talented men and women who I'm big fans of. Um, I, I worked in the Scottish Premier League, so I was at, at, when I was there, I was working with the old firm who, you know, owned, owned football in Scotland, frankly. I was at Hibernian in Edinburgh, um, you know, and it was some of the things that, that the Hearts and Hibs executives we used to look at people leaving edinburgh heading to glasgow and just pull our hair out you know why are they leaving edinburgh there's two teams here stay here don't get on the motorway and go to glasgow <laughs> uh, but, but there's so, so much immense history with you know with the old firm clubs um i think the u i think a lot of it comes down to, to two important facets of this when it comes to the u.s <clears throat> um uh, uh americans are by nature um pioneering type of people um, very driven, very up, very positive, very optimistic, um, driven to be successful and to beat each other's you know bums every single day in terms of whatever they're competing against. Um, so they they drive themselves. They don't they don't need to be anybody else to drive them. Um, I think that they and we've proven this. We've grown our commercial income year to year over the last three years, and our team is had a bit of a rough run and we've been a, a, a one of the top teams in the league for many, many years. I remember talking to people in England that were telling me if the team is struggling, our commercial business is pretty much null and void. People aren't coming. People don't want to partner with us. And, and I don't buy that. I mean, I, I, I understand. And, you know, we've talked to the, to, I've talked to mates in England. They said, well, it's just culturally different. I said, not really. 
Nobody likes losing in America more than anywhere else in the world. You know? <laughs> um, believe me, nobody likes losing in this country. But I think it's trying to build partnerships and relationships which are not built around the team so much, Daniel, right? They're built around this is what we can offer you. We're not going to guarantee you the team's going to win every game. There's only one winner in every league every year. But what we can guarantee you is if we're telling you our players are going to, are going to engage with your brand and we're going to work on these different things which is going to drive your results, you can bet on it. That's what we're going to be able to accomplish. So I do think they're the best in the world here. Um, and, I, and I think, again, it, it's the competition that drives it. I mean, you know, you're, we're, we're in a market like this where – I've got a good understanding of what the Astros, the Rockets, and the Texans are doing on a pretty regular basis. Um, you know, I, I've got, I've seen their proposals. I, I know where the numbers are. I know what they're willing to accept and what they're not willing to accept. Um, you know, so if, if you can have that kind of intel, it's just the battle of the wits. And I actually love that. I yeah. love that part of it. Yeah. You know? It's it's interesting those comments around commercial programs struggling if the team's not doing well because we've got multiple clients who have won competitions in in recent years and you know clearly we speak to our clients regularly and and you would expect saying to them so has the comp you know winning the competition impacted your commercial program much and it's never as much as an outside person might think it will and that's for me because the partnership's not built around the team's success. It's exactly what you spoke about before. The partnerships are built around the objectives. And just because a team wins or loses, they don't necessarily you know, lose or attract more fans week in, week out. Right. Well, I mean, you look at Leeds United. I mean, I'm sure you know, they've had challenges with what, the, what they've been going through. They've got new ownership there. That's putting the it lightly, family. Steve. Yeah. But, um, but you know, they, 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 they are, you know, it's a often used and probably overused term when you talk about the, the giants, right? The aristocrats of football. Leeds United are that. I mean, I grew up as a kid in the 60s and 70s, and Leeds United were the team you hated. I did, especially. <laughs> the Guna. Um, but we're an incredible club. Even when David O'Leary was there, they were an incredible club. And um, I look at some of the, the – uh, we get a lot of the championship games here, and I see some of the games at Ellen Road, and – they still draw well, but, you know, when they go back up to the Prem again, you won't be able to find a seat in that ground. Mm. You wouldn't. Absolutely. Um, but I would still assume that it's, a, it's, still a, it's still a massively strong brand in Yorkshire and that if, if the, the, the commercial boys at Ellen Road and gals, I'm sure, are talking to the agencies and selling the, the strengths and the attributes of this brand, Leeds United, is a historic British football brand. Forget, well, now you're, you're in the playoff spot, aren't you, right now? If you yeah, hold it. Yep. But, um, you know, even when they weren't, it's still a historic brand. It's not a, no disrespect, Rotherham United, right? It's another Yorkshire club who have got a beautiful new stadium. They don't have the history of Leeds United. So, you know, for me, I would love to be a commercial guy at a club like that where you go, Phew, you know, we're, we're riding it. You know what I mean? And we're going to ride it all the way to the top. Yeah, it, 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 let's stay on one of my favourite topics, Leeds United. So, in a recent trip to um, to England, <laughs> I uh, I went to an away game, uh, Villa Aston Villa versus Leeds. Uh, mm-hmm. Sat didn't wear my Leeds shirt. My little boy didn't wear his Leeds yeah. shirt, but we sat in the family stand um, at Villa Park there, up at Birmingham, and we got there quite early. And what 
I mean, I'd always been aware of it, but taking my young fellow to his first football game in England, this this really, really hit home for me and the differences in markets that there was absolutely nothing to do in the precinct except buy a burger. Yet at yeah. football matches in Australia, particularly if you go to the MCG on game day, there's a whole area dedicated to taking your kids and kicking the footy and they can play video games and colouring in. The mascots are there. There's all sorts of stuff going on. We basically had to stand around in the in the forecourt of the, the, the ground for an hour and a half. Do, do you do many activations in America like in the precinct? Okay. Oh, yeah. And, and it, it's, it always astounds me, Daniel, when I go back home and I go, I am a, I am a football anorak. I mean, I'm an Arsenal supporter, but um, I've been to just about every, most of the grounds in England, most of the grounds in Scotland, including, you know, East Stirlingshire and Brecon City and those kind of clubs. Um, it astounds me that clubs don't do that because we talk about, uh, be honest with you, I know footy people get annoyed by this. And they'll sit there and go, it's about a football match, mate. It's not about the event. Well, that's, I, I, I think, a an ignorant viewpoint that's going to put people in a bad place in the future because um, it is about the event. People do want the experience, and the experience should include layers of as many brilliant things as possible. And there is clubs, not enough of them, but there is clubs in England that are trying to come up with some pre-match kind of activities to do. Um, at the Houston Dynamo, we have two areas. We have one which we've closed a street off. It's sponsored by Budweiser. It's called Orange Avenue. That's an entire street that's just a big beer garden, Daniel. Yes, I we love have, it. I mean, we have a stage at one end, the Budweiser stage, where bands performing. It's a massive big party before the game starts. The other side of the stadium, we have a sponsorship activation and a family area because we didn't want to. We used to at one point combine the two and it wasn't a, wasn't a, a good integration. You could see people weren't comfortable. So now on the other side, if you've got your families and your kids coming, you and I are gonna bring, gonna go that end. If you're going out with your friends, young men and young, young women, they want to have a few pints and enjoy the experience, they're gonna go down to this end. So that will start at least 90 minutes before kickoff, right? We do that, they go into the stadium, they have a good experience, um, enjoy the match, um, and now we're actually thinking this year we've got a, a new bar that we're building inside the ground. We are going to make that bar area available to everybody. It used to be private. And we're looking at doing the man of the match in this space, bringing the player out there, and then trying to get the fans and the player all engaging in this particular spot as well. So we're trying to even amp it up to the next level that we've already been doing. Yeah, it's it's interesting those comments around activations and you know the prevailing attitude mostly in football in in the UK that it's about the football match, but that never marries up well with for me when people then say, but when the team's doing badly, our commercial program starts to die because, we, and we've spoken about this a couple of times in 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 the questions that I've asked is that it's a for a lot of brands it's about the engagement and that doesn't just happen happen in a digital space, brands will be happy with their partnership, if they're engaging with fans on whatever level they feel comfortable with, and if that's in precinct activities, it won't matter that the team's necessarily not winning every game. Well, I totally agree. And if, and if you if you aren't making any kind of um, intent to do that, you've got to sit, the brand's got to look at that and say, if all I'm doing is buying wins and losses, that's like buying ratings. I might as well just do 
just chuck all this in and just start spending back in the media space. My, my old boss, Gordon Jager, I remember him telling me stories back when he was a manager at QPR, which was 73, and I think he was at, at Millwall like late 70s. He was the team manager, but the manager in those days pretty much ran the business. You know, they were the chief exec slash manager. And I remember Gordon telling me stories that they used to do Penley King competitions at halftime at um, the old den, which, you know, good luck on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and at Loftus Road. And he said it was so popular with the supporters. And he, even then he used to get other clubs saying, why would, why would you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why other clubs weren't looking at that and saying, that's how you build a, a fan base. That's how you build loyalty. Bring in the kids, the next generation of Millwall supporters and QPR supporters, which is what he was doing. Absolutely. You know? I mean, Absolutely. It's crazy. Yeah, and well, if you, I think extrapolate's the wrong word, but if you flip that around, why would you bank on the success of a commercial program on a team who you have no control over? What would, exactly. you, what would you link the success of your commercial program and your job to football players who may or may not kick a goal? It doesn't make any sense. Right. No, and I agree. I mean, and I consider myself definitely a footy person, but I'll say this, Daniel. I think the, the, the clubs and organizations that do that, maybe they're the ones who are just purely football people and really not marketers or commercial people enough to see that, right? right? Um, maybe that's really the reality of the situation is that's the only space they understand and know. And their chief exec and their, and their owners have said, yeah, yeah, you know what, Bill, you're right, you're right. We'll, we'll, be, we'll, we'll win. When we win, you'll be able to go out and do your job. In the meantime, I'm going to keep writing you a check every two weeks, yeah. <laughs> regardless of what you generate. <laughs> Not done that way in the States, I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you keep up with what's happening in the sponsorship market? Not necessarily about, you know, Coca-Cola signed this deal or IBM signed this deal, but more from a professional development point of view. How do you keep up to date with what's happening and keep improving yourself and your team? Yeah, I, I, um, I'm, a, I'm a vociferous reader. I'm constantly reading whatever kind of digital or print publications I can Sports Business Journal, Sports Business Daily, Houston Business Journal, um, Ad Week. I, I go through a lot of those. Wall Street Journal, not as much as I should, but, but do. Um, I'm constantly talking to people in the industry, Daniel, right? And, and I, when I hear of somebody's doing a deal with brand XYZ, I've been doing this such a long time. If I don't know that person, I'll know somebody around that space. I pick up the phone and call them and say, you got the deal done yet? I know you're not going to give me too much information until you got your own deal done, but you know, tell me about what they're looking for, what particular markets they're looking for, what demo they're looking for. I'm not shy about reaching out to people to ask them what a brand's objectives are, um, to then try and engage with that brand and do some business. So I'm constantly asking questions. I drive my wife insane that when I'm, whenever I go to a sporting event or I watch a game on television. I'm taking a list, either mental or written list, about who's buying advertising, who's buying the who's buying the perimeter advertising, who's doing this, who's doing that, and I'm either passing it on to my team or I'm doing my own kind of research to figure out is it viable, is this one maybe makes sense for us as well. We try to be, we try to be the one that's ahead of the others, but sometimes you know it might be one that's doing a little bit of business with them and. Um, we could be in a situation where um, we can offer something a little different for them. 
You know what I mean? And that sometimes is a positive. On that keeping up to date and, and industry developments, we've seen many big rights holders in sport sign esports players and uh, under their main brand, particularly football clubs. And I read today that Lagadier have just signed uh, one of the big esports teams. Have the Dynamo discussed that at all? Not something that's come up. Um, we, you know, we have. Um, EA Sports are a partner of Major League Soccer. We've had relationships we don't currently, but we've had individual market relationships with them in the past. They're an incredibly super, super talented group of people uh, based up there in British Columbia. We hope to work with them again in the future. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the information, the research they've provided and other people have provided to me is, you know, that, that e-gaming thing, has driven a lot of people to be interested in this sport. You know, people that, boys and girls that never kicked a football in their life have played FIFA and suddenly went, this looks like a good game. I'm going to come watch it. Um, it's amazing to me, you know what I mean, as mm. somebody in his 50s that grew up, you know, throwing two anoraks down the ground and playing the game from <laughs> six in the morning to midnight, right? Yep. Um, it's just a different generation. But I, I, I'm sure we will at some point, Daniel. It's just not something that's... That's one of our short-term goals. What about other areas of your commercial program? Are you looking to focus on anything in particular or develop any areas in particular over the next 12 months or so? I think it's um, the the social digital media space is one that I think we've done a, a very solid job, um, but I think we could still take it further. Um, uh, um, you know, BHP Billiton is our current jersey sponsor. We hope they continue in that space. Um, I, think, I think it's been a terrific relationship for them. Hope they, you know, hopefully um, they continue. If they don't, then I need to go out and find somebody else in that space. So, you know, I mean, it's it's um, the, the digital social, I think, is just one that clearly is um, one that's going to offer lots of opportunity for us. It's just coming to, for us, to come up with ways of um, how we can build out what the opportunities look like. Stephen, awesome chat full of great insights. If people want to get in touch with you or find, about, find out more about the Houston Dynamo, what can they do? Uh, they can call, they could chat, they could feel free to email me at spowell at houstondynamo.com or they can always call me at my office, which is uh, 713-276. 7557 and I'd love to meet with and talk to any brands or any other people in you know in sports that can kind of share some best practice and some ideas they've done that's worked we're always you know we're a sponge here and anything we can learn from other people we're all about it there you go listeners I can uh Stephen I can tell you that you're the first podcast guest in I think this is our 27th episode to ever give out their phone number. So people, uh, take advantage of that, connect with Stephen, but please be mindful of time zones. Don't call him at uh, 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Stephen Powell, Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer, thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship at the Houston Dynamo. Uh, my pleasure, Daniel. really enjoyed um, talking to you today and uh, – um, look forward to listening in the future. Thank you very much. Great chat with Stephen and very thankful that he could take some time out of his busy day to share his experiences and his insights with us. If you want to get in touch with Stephen, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or find out more about Houston Dynamo at 
houstondynamo.com. And all those links are in the show notes at sponserve.net. Before we wrap it up, I just wanted to check if you have downloaded our ebook, which is called Aligning Benefits to Sponsor Objectives. It's a step-by-step guide on how to research potential sponsors and then walk them through the benefits you can offer while gaining their buy-in on the execution of those benefits, but most importantly, while aligning them to the objectives that they are looking to achieve in their marketing. Or you might be new in your sponsorship role and might find our one of our other eBooks, the New Sponsorship Manager Action Plan, uh, a useful guide because it's a guide to all things you should do in the first three months of a new sponsorship role. So to get those eBooks, simply head along to sponsor.net and head to the resources section. And the best bit is they are 100% free. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponserve. And of course, you can connect with Mark Thompson on LinkedIn or email at mark at sponserve.net. If you aren't already, be sure to subscribe to receive all our content straight to your inbox. Simply head to any of our blogs or podcasts at sponserve.net and fill in the subscription form and we'll deliver the content straight to your inbox each and every week. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to Sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.